Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, a quick note before we start the show. If you are tired of hearing me give you these quick notes before we start the show, we don't give them to you when you support us and uh, we give you a completely ad-free feed. And really, it's just the way that we are able to do this. And so I'm asking you to do it. Go to your show notes, click on the link and like... Five bucks a month Canadian blip. It just puts a premium podcast feed right on your device. Or if you're on desktop, go to canadalandshow.com slash join. Late this past June, in the downtown east side of Vancouver, a group called the Drug User Liberation Front handed out free cocaine and free opiates right out on the street. Tiny doses of hard narcotics that had been tested for fentanyl. It was a good way to get attention on an issue that has kind of disappeared, even as that issue itself has never been worse. That issue being the opioid crisis. In May alone, in British Columbia, there were 170 fatal overdoses. The protesters want a clean, safe supply. And giving out free drugs, whether you like that idea or not, well, it worked. The protesters got people's attention. They got the media's attention back onto the opioid crisis. And one of those protesters was Garth Mullins. Garth is the host of Crackdown, a podcast about the war on drugs and the war on drug users, as told by drug addicts. Embedded war correspondence, if you will. Well, I'm sorry 
we can't take it anymore when we have to go home to our communities and they're fucking dead. The very first thing I ever said after using heroin, the very first thing I said was, I turned to my brother and I said, I feel normal. Now that's kind of an odd thing for a 12 year old <laughs> to say the first time they ever used heroin. I walked across the hall and knocked on my neighbor Simon's door. Simon was my heroin dealer. I asked him if he knew where I could get some methadone, and he told me, I sell the disease as well as the cure. I spoke to Garth about Crackdown last spring when I called it the best new podcast in Canada. And since then, a lot has changed, while other things stubbornly refuse to change. On the positive side, Crackdown has become a hit. The show has won the Third Coast Award for Radio Impact and the 2020 Canadian Hillman Prize for Investigative Reporting. Beyond the accolades, the show has had impact. Crackdown's reporting led to a new class action lawsuit brought by BC's methadone users against the BC Ministry of Health, the BC College of Pharmacists, and the pharmaceutical company, Mallinckrodt. That lawsuit is now before the courts. The claims concern an exclusive exchange agreement between BC's Ministry of Health and that pharmaceutical company, which resulted in BC suddenly cutting off the supply of prescription methadone to people who live with opioid addiction. Which brings us to the negative side. The lawsuit alleges that people are being harmed as a result of the methadose switch. One member of Crackdown's editorial board, Charisse Kiwatin, has died as a result. A second editorial board member of Crackdown, Dave Murray, died on May 7th of this year. Dave's work made Vancouver's heroin clinic possible, the only heroin clinic in North America. Those are just a couple casualties of war, of the war on drugs. That's what Crackdown has lost even as it has won so much in terms of awards and listeners and influence. Today, we're going to replay that April 2019 conversation with Garth Mullins, where he talks about breaking the traditional rules of journalism in order to create some of the most compelling coverage of the opioid epidemic that I've ever heard. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Jeff Hibbard, Gregory Howard, Priscilla Chorbagian, Heather Cummins, Bram Gonshore, Jeremy Bork, Daniel Canu, and Chris Bradley. I'm Chris Bradley. I'm an animator from Vancouver, BC. I support Canada Land because I really ought to pay for the news I listen to. That's only fair. That's only fair. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, 
there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Garth, before I ask you any questions, I think I just have to congratulate you on producing an excellent podcast. Uh, It's a really good show. Oh, thanks very much. The way that you describe what you're doing uh, is, uh, I mean, you are journalists uh, and and you are activists, but you also describe yourselves as war correspondents. You've taken on the language of the drug war. Like, it's like you're, I don't know if you're accepting or if you're appropriating the Reagan era classification that there is a war on drugs. Are you being cheeky or do you feel that there is a war on drugs? And, And if so, is it the same one that Reagan was fighting? Yeah, I think both. Like, I'm always a little bit cheeky, but also there sure still is a drug war. I mean, there there still are tens of thousands of people arrested every year across Canada for possessing drugs. People are dying at a, a rate that's never been seen before, and they're dying from policy choices, from uh, legal decisions and legislative decisions. And so it absolutely is a war. There are sides. We want you to know us. We also want to expose the people who are on the other side who are killing us because they have names, they have jobs, they have titles. And so why not cover this like a war? I mean, too often it's been covered like a force of nature or just a very sad thing or or even like a redemption story. Oh, look at this comeback kid who's made good. And all of those narratives don't capture the way I've experienced it anyway. Even using the words that the media has taken on, it's a crisis it kind of underserves it as a news story because, you know, you can only kind of have one news cycle where you go, oh, my God, crisis. And then it, it just becomes like, oh, yeah, fact of life, crisis. And so the crisis language kind of fails, whereas uh, to cover it as a war, like I hate to put it in such crass terms, but it, it has legs. There's a narrative to a war. A, a conflict has a beginning, middle and end. And the way that you tell these stories is different. Yeah. And, and you know, just in my life, this is the second overdose crisis that I have lived through. So uh, I was a heroin, injection heroin drug user all the way through the first one. I'm on methadone now, but o- over these two crises and the time between, I- I've lost half of the cohort of people I came up with. You know, I tried to count. I got to about 50 and I had to stop. It was just, it was doing my head in. These are big wars, big elements of campaigns with fronts. They they almost feel militaristic. The police response is definitely militaristic. You're right. Crisis sounds like, uh, you know, an environmental crisis or, uh, you know, like a bad storm is coming through or something like that. Like we all agree, isn't this terrible? Let's let's send some relief aid or something. But this is actually willful and intentional and malicious. And I, I, it's probably useful for us just to kind of uh, take the bright line bullet points. Where are we at right now? We sort of have gotten up to about uh, 1,500 uh, deaths a year in B.C., probably about 4,000 in Canada for the last two years. Each year. Uh, yes. So, you know, in BC it's and Canada, it's shortening life expectancies. So the average life expectancy is shorter because all of us who've, who've died. And it's, you know, the, 
number one cause of death for a certain demographic or a certain age group of people, like above car accidents and suicides and other ways that you can go out. I mean, it's not getting better. Uh, it's not waning. And in fact, if history of these crises is any um, indication, there may be a lull at some point, but then there'll be a worse, deeper thing to come. Getting back to the the war metaphor, it might not be an exaggeration to say that the Canadian media itself has declared war on drug users. Just to have a look at a few things that have been said, uh, Rick Bell of the Calgary Sun called drug users scumbags. The Red Deer Advocate referred to uh, a place where addicts hang out as a zombie apocalypse. Margaret Wente, of course, has written repeatedly against safe injection sites She's asked the question, does naloxone really save lives? Yeah, is the earth really round? Yeah. Like that's a good column topic for next week, maybe. How about this one? The new editor-in-chief of the Sun newspaper chain is a national newspaper chain in Canada, Mark Tuey, formerly chief of staff for Toronto Mayor Ford. Rob Ford. Yeah. He has tweeted, Doug Ford is right. There is zero point keeping people alive just to suffer in perpetual misery. And Tui has also said that fentanyl is the best thing that's ever happened to drug addicts. That is the editor-in-chief of a national Canadian newspaper chain, I think, saying that people like you are better off dead. Well, fuck that guy. <laughs> what a piece of shit. No, seriously. He's saying he's saying me and my friends can go off and die and, and thousands and thousands of other people in Canada. And, and this guy's, you know, at the helm of a very well-read uh, chain of dailies. You know, it, it's shocking. It's why we exist is to basically say, fuck that guy. A lot of people agree with him. There are well, fuck them people. too. Yeah. No, I, I'm serious. I mean, this is, this is like, do you think our lives, do you think the lives of people are worth living? And, and where do we extend this to? Like, if you get in a car accident, should we say, you know, maybe maybe you made a choice or missed a light or something. You know, somehow this you could have some agency in this, so we're not going to send an ambulance. Uh, we'll let you burn up in that, you know. Like, how do you organize a society around uh, let people die? You know, it's an incredibly regressive position, and it's also super um, unscientific, un-evidence-based, doesn't understand the reasons and the ways people get into the risk of an overdose to begin with. I think that your war starts there, and I, I wonder if it's winnable. The conception that I feel is probably widely held, um, though not expressed as, as often as it's held, that drug users are a blight, that they cause all kinds of social problems, and that uh, perpetuating their lives through ongoing treatment perpetuates societal problems. The best counter evidence to that is persuasion. And I think that just what you can achieve in a podcast with your own voice in humanizing yourself and others, if anything can change people's minds, it's that. And yet I also feel like I also feel like fuck those people. And and like, is that your audience? I mean, in a sense, that's probably the best thing you could do is show like that your life is worth living. And yet for you to have to advocate for your own humanity feels, I don't know, gross to me. I mean, it is gross, and I do say flippantly, fuck those people, but I realize I also have to convince them. Uh, and, you know, I think where we start is we organize amongst ourselves. I try to show people the the world of drug users that I see, which is a lot of people who are activists who've been fighting for their own human rights for uh, a generation, for 20, 25 years. Uh, and we've won all the things that you see now. Uh, safe injection sites, naloxone, needle distribution. These are the things that, that we actually fought for and in some cases did illegally first. 
uh, and eventually became more but not entirely accepted forms of uh, you know public health intervention. So when I started using was just at the end of the big sort of 80s, early 90s HIV uh, AIDS crisis. And uh, Vancouver had the highest rates of transmission infection in the industrialized world because of the policy to not allow new needles, new syringes to be obtained by drug users. So people shared and it spread. And so there's a policy decision right there. They just cost loads and loads of people their lives. And we uh, started by having people actually liberate medical supplies from their workplaces. And you hear a guy like that, a, a medical, a practitioner, a healthcare worker who stole boxes of syringes from his workplace to help deal with them. Can, can we say redistribute instead of steal? Um, because let's... Okay, so, so, so Thomas, you liberated and redistributed um, clean new syringes for people to use? Liberation and redistribution is, is a concept I can live with. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to admit to stealing on this podcast. And well, What was the moment? Do you remember like a night where you're just like, fuck it, I got to do this. And when you're leaving some office or some place, you're just like, this box is coming with me. You're really asking for a lot of disclosure around this. Well, only what you're only what you're comfortable with. But look, to be honest, we're trying to give other people who are listening the courage to do the same sort of thing. Yeah. There's a lot of doctors that listen to our podcast. I want them to break the fucking law. When the law is wrong, I want people to resist the law. Yeah. You know, I was one of these people. I had the same syringe for a month at a time. Sometimes I just sharpen it on a matchstick. I have blown out all of my veins because of stuff like that. And I'm super lucky to be here. So many people aren't. But it's a, it's a simple policy measure. And I understand that homeowners may sometimes uh, say, oh, I, I saw this syringe on the street, you know, and, and I, I agree, that shouldn't be there. And so we also organize ourselves and obtain uh, funding to go pick them up, to go uh, clean that stuff up. And there are people in any city who are drug users who would be glad of the work to go and uh, pick that stuff up. It's just a question of how do we organize? You know, do we organize being stingy with healthcare supplies or do we organize to take care of the neighborhoods? That these are all choices made by human beings. Well, that's something that your show does really well is is put into story form and explain how the part of it that touches uh quote unquote, you know, regular people's lives uh, in a way that they find negative is directly a result of policy. That's sort of a theme again and again is that the kind of criminal behaviors that people feel personally affronted by happen because of policy. Absolutely. You know, I think about Tui and, and their conservative friends there um, talking about how our lives aren't worth anything and maybe what kind of strategy to use to close down uh, safe injection sites in Ontario and how to communicate that in the press. And they might do this over a scotch. You know, they might have a couple of drinks at the end of the day. And prohibition applied to alcohol first, you know, back in the day, it was illegal to buy and consume alcohol the day before prohibition started everybody's favorite drink was beer there was no problem the day after people started making moonshine it had to be smaller and stronger easier to smuggle easier to get away from the cops and so people started to get sick people died people went blind and eventually you had prohibition repealed and now i have no idea where to buy illegal moonshine and you everyone's favorite drink is beer again that policy decision to make booze illegal actually made a whole bunch of people criminals who wouldn't otherwise have been. So before Canada made opium illegal in, in 1908, people smoked opium. 
And then since it's illegal, you had to make it smaller. You had to smuggle it. Each drug user had to get more value for money because it's a little more expensive or whatever. Then you have the rise of, uh, you know, injection drug use and you get stronger and stronger drugs all the way through up until in my life. Like I said, I've seen two overdose crises and and it keeps getting stronger. You get an introduction of new things like fentanyl and carfentanyl. And I don't know what the next even stronger thing will be, but it's the iron law of prohibition. This is a policy that just drives us speeding into these crises. I mean, that crisis, the fentanyl crisis is the urgency that fuels your show. And when you talk about how like our drug supply is toxic right now, it sort of casts things in a different light to me to say, well, accept that there is a drug supply, accept that people are going to use drugs and it is toxic right now. A lot of the drugs that have been tainted with fentanyl are drugs that I have done recreationally. Like it's like a dispatch from a specific community that feels you know, exotic and foreign to me. And yet the connection points keep popping up as I listen to the show, that this is about everybody or at least somebody that everybody knows. Yeah, we're we're a little exotic and weird, but um, we're going to the suburbs for the next episode. Oh, yeah. And we're going to, yeah, we're going to tame it right down. And uh, the one after that, we're going to Portugal. So we are uh, going to take people to different places in different worlds so that they can see that, yeah, you know, the people who are making the show or me and the editorial board anyway, we might be uh, wired sort of daily opioid users. But there's lots of people who have uh, just partied on the weekend and, you know, they've just hit the wrong thing. They've got a pill that they thought was something and it was something else and they're gone now, you know. So uh, the fact that. Uh, there's people out there saying, oh, uh, you know, drug users should just go on and die. Well, they probably have kids, you know, and and their kids might experiment on the weekend or, or at college or whatever, and they're vulnerable too. And so we actually make efforts to protect them too. So I go and I teach uh, university students and university staff how to use naloxone kits. And, you know, we're trying to protect the kids of probably some of these very conservative people who don't give a shit about us. You know, talking about how you're a daily opioid user and and likening that to like there are people who are daily alcohol users and we have accepted that that is something that people can do. That's a that's a a big leap for a lot of people to accept that you can you can do that for the rest of your life and it doesn't it won't make you a thief. You're not going to spread disease. You're not going to leave syringes. It's none of their fucking business uh, at a certain point. I think the charge is hypocrisy when you talk about imagining those critics who think your life is worthless sitting down to their Lafroy at the end of the day. And yet, as forthcoming as you are about your own ongoing drug use, you also say in the first episode that you've never talked about it so publicly before. Why now? Why on this podcast? Why break your silence about that? Uh, I mean, I, I haven't really talked about it so much. I, I didn't keep it a secret. I just didn't make a big show of it or kind of advertise because, uh, you know, I wanted to get jobs. Like, I've uh, worked as a freelancer at CBC before, uh, you know, making radio for ideas. And I don't think they'd hold it against me. But, you know, there's this different way people look at you about filing receipts for travel or something like that. And maybe you also can't exactly get, you know, jobs where you have a laptop or it just changes the kind of life trajectory that you get. You know, people won't rent you apartments if they know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of stigma around there. But also, as the years of the crisis went on, I started to feel guilty about that. So in in 2014, you know, I started to have this weird feeling of deja vu. Like I get that spidey sense of things are kind of seeming familiar again around my neighborhood. And so I just started feeling this sense of like I should be using my skills and my activism and my ability to make radio 
to do something and and you know the consequences be damned on me like I gotta come out about this and and so eventually I did it took me a little while but I just you know you you lose friends and you see people making tremendous sacrifices to try and change the world and here I am sitting you know passing basically as someone who doesn't use drugs and you know because I've learned how to like code switch into very professional sort of talking <laughs> like I don't always say fuck that guy as <laughs> my first starting point so that's how one represents on Canada Led, I suppose <laughs> well I guess I'm in the right place then <laughs> yeah Laura Shaver your colleague she's the president of the British Columbia Association of People on Methadone a board member on the Vancouver area network of drug users and an interview subject on the podcast the worst thing about this is it just shows again that we have um barely any input. You're on methadone now, this is what you will be taking um, as of February 1st. We have no choice. You guys, I'm really sorry that this is happening. Don't, it's all good. Like, this this has to be real, right? Like, whatever we're doing, it's just, this is what's happening in our life. Yeah. After listening to that old tape with Laura, I asked her to do another interview. This one starts out very differently than the last one. Laura's cooking up heroin. She was supposed to join you today, for this interview, but was unable to. What's the story there? Well, uh, we have an editorial board and everybody on it is an activist and a drug user. And so we have people who've, you know, gone to the Supreme Court and we've lobbied the prime minister and and met with international dignitaries. But we also kind of have experience with jail and homelessness and bead, crack, coke, heroin, fentanyl, all that, all that stuff. So one of our, one of our, members is was named Cherise Kiwatin and uh, she died about three four weeks ago uh, she was very close friends with Laura I I knew her for about six years and 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 so uh, it's it's kind of thrown us into a bit of chaos we had to uh, you know figure out a memorial and uh, and a funeral and stuff like that and then there are a couple of uh, related but but adjacent legal issues that are are still playing through um, and so Laura, I couldn't, I couldn't get Laura today. I guess it's a, a little moment into our workflow that the criminalization of drugs and drug users is so incredibly disruptive to our lives that it can make things really difficult to plan. So we, we have to build a process that's flexible, that meets people where they're at, right? Like some people are like, let's edit the tape, let's edit the script. And sometimes the, the challenges of life close in and you can't quite uh, do what you're trying to do. So we made it episode two was about how a drug treatment, uh, you know, an addiction treatment called uh, methadone was kind of messed with uh, in BC by some government decisions and a big pharmaceutical company and led to lots and lots of misery for for people here. And, and also in Ontario, uh, a lot of people got switched to a, a new big pharma form of methadone called methadose. And methadone is supposed to do one thing, keep you from feeling dope sick, keep you from having those withdrawal cravings. It's kind of like a nicotine patch, you know, it just, it, you don't have to smoke. It just, it does that. It sort of takes care of the cravings for you. Well, this stuff would fail after about 12 hours. You're supposed to take it once a day. And so people were spending half of the day now dope sick again. So they would have, uh, you know, like stopped using, gotten on methadone, uh, not not been using heroin, you know, put their life back together. Then all of a sudden a government decision happens and they're thrown right back into the place they were before. Well, that happened to Sharice. Uh, it also happened to Laura, but Sharice never was able to bounce back. So after the switch, it was just like a tumble downhill and now she's gone. And 
um, you know, we're we're really mad as hell about about all of it, and we're trying to get some redress from the government. So we lost her. Uh, it's made Laura's life more difficult. And uh, Laura told me, you know, keep keep going after those bastards, you know. So we're doing all the investigative work and FOIs and, you know, tracking down the lobbyists from the big pharmaceutical companies, you know. So we're trying to put tools of investigative journalism in the hands of the people who are most affected by this stuff. I guess that's a long way of explaining why my friend isn't here. No, it's, <laughs> it's instructive. And, you know, it, look... I, it, my preferred delivery system for information is narrative storytelling in audio form. Listening to your show, I realized how little I know about this stuff that I've been reading about for years. Your life as an ongoing methadone user. So this is a way basically to prevent yourself from getting sick in a perpetual ongoing way. This isn't a way to get off drugs. My understanding is you don't get high from methadone. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, you can taper off methadone if you want to. You have to do it over a long, slow period. But you know, I know for me, I've been on some opiate or another my whole adult life. And if I am for the rest of it, then so be it. Uh, and I just want it to be one that comes from a pharmacy and isn't going to kill me and isn't going to uh, bankrupt me or put me in jail. And that right now is methadone. And I I just want those kind of options for everybody. Methadone doesn't work for everybody. There's a lot of barriers to getting on. And it just... Uh, you know, I developed my habit uh, a long time ago. For people who are getting there, uh, getting wired right now, uh, fentanyl is a lot stronger. So you may need stronger medications to treat it. Even if you are part of a, you know, the progressive and humanitarian approach where you're part of a methadone program, there's still something so dehumanizing, as you describe it on your show, of being completely at the mercy of pharmaceutical companies and government who just say one day, the decision is made, and it's quite likely a business decision that you're not getting methadone, you're getting methadose. And everyone's screaming out to say this is turning people back to heroin uh, and, and you know, it's, it's falling on deaf ears. When you describe that as a story and, and where that story is coming from, it's incredibly compelling. And it does explain, I think, what the, the bright line point of all of this, which is that the social ills and the social cost of this are, again, it's because of bad policy. Yeah, I mean, we uh, I, I tried to get this story out as soon as it was happening. And I, I had a lot of trouble. Uh, Vice uh, published me a little bit, but I couldn't really pitch it. and I couldn't get it to go very far because it is a bit of a complicated story. Like it took us just a few minutes to explain it there. And that's the nature of a lot of the overdose crisis stories. They're kind of layered. They're complex. And uh, I, I guess part of the podcast is my increasing frustration with not being able to kind of land these stories properly. So we just thought we would try and do it ourselves through a, a different method. But another thing I realized is going and trying to meet with these government senior management type officials or ministers or something, they do not believe drug users. They just look at you with such suspicion. Like I can just feel it, you know. So uh, we started bringing along, well, this one guy I met, Dr. Ryan McNeil, who's who we bring on the podcast sometimes, and other people who've done research. And sometimes they've done research at our request on stuff so that we can then say, well, see, it's not just us. It's not just in our heads or we're not just making up a story to try and uh, somehow bum drugs off the government. Here's some research that really documents what the ills are of this particular policy. I have never heard you, uh, you know, sell a mattress or, or uh, push for a meal kit service. Uh, how was Crackdown funded? We have funding from uh, research like the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. 
So it's like they provide funding for people to do research, and some of it is called knowledge transfer. So when there is research, if you're good at explaining it to other people, there are small bits of money that you can do that. So we very creatively said, well, of course, that's actually what we do or a good part of what we do. So we sought money that way. But I don't know if that's a sustainable <laughs> like ongoing model or, or what the future of that is uh, for us. But it, it got us a push start anyway. I think that one thing we haven't touched on that is immediately going to jump out to people when they hear your show is that it's pretty graphic. And here we go. Too fast. Sheffy's lying on the linoleum. Kevin has pulled a chair into the room. Reaching down, he gently aligns Sheffy's head. He runs a finger along the protruding neck vein, slides the needle in, and pulls the plunger back. Just a touch. A red flag of blood blooms in the syringe. Some people just keep going, and it's wasting person's um, hit. And in the neck is the most dangerous spot, so you got to make sure you stop. Kevin's a fairly big guy. Sheffy is smaller. And something about the way that Kevin is cradling Sheffy's head looks very tender. Okay, take your breath. Take a second. Okay, cool. Kevin discards the used needle into a sharps box and cleans up. Everyone is just kind of looking at Sheffy lying on the ground. Are you all right? Yeah. Well, you get out. Make, we got company here. Make us look bad. Make us look bad. Fucking. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling good. He looks at us and smiles. Hold on to me. <laughs> I just want to see my baby today. Why did you want your listeners to hear people actually doing drugs and injecting opiates? You know, I really thought about that a lot because, uh, you know, because there's so much stigmatizing coverage of people doing drugs on TV news, especially, you know, they'll just show a picture of somebody shooting up in an alley or something like that. And so I, my first instinct was to not do that. But when we have Laura and we're sitting down for an interview about how this new methadone isn't working and it's feeling dope sick to her and she's having to do a hit before the interview, that's part of the story. And she told us, you know, use it, do it. This is this is happening. This is the stakes. So we're actually putting it in the context of the person. I actually wanted to show a really lovely moment between two people there, uh, between Kevin, who's this kind of big, gruff guy, and Sheffy, who's this littler guy, and, and that Kevin was helping him do this hit in this really gentle, giving kind of way. And um, I wanted to show like a different side of, of all of that, you know? It's a really complicated scene. It's an evocative scene. It's a really complicated, there's so much going on in that scene. The fact that Sheffy just finished his shift of helping other people then he's being sort of tenderly helped himself, uh, but it's visceral and there's an element of danger you describe. You're fucking around with jugular veins. Bad stuff can happen. And then there's his reverie when he gets high and starts to sing. And you're you're plucking on so many strings in me as a listener. Like, I got to tell you, Garth, like, I'll listen to, you know, a 30-minute podcast on where the opioid crisis, the overdose crisis is at right now. I'm not going to listen to episode after episode if you're just describing the crisis to me, but I'll listen to the shit out of your show because because it's got great stories and compelling characters, but also because you take me to places I'm curious about. 
I, I can see things where I would never want to go myself. And I'm also kind of curious about what it's like to get high in that way. I'm a, I'm a tourist. You let me safely visit what it's like to be a drug addict. I got to ask you, how do you navigate the line between storytelling and journalism and advocacy on the one hand and exploitation on the other? Well, we have an editorial board of the people who are organizers and part of the community and responsible for running groups that everybody's in and that are you know involved in overseeing that same injection room where we took you. So there's direct accountability. People aren't going to tolerate being made an exhibit of or something like that. And then we play tape back to people. Like we have a listening party and play an episode. And if people say no way, don't do that, then we'll miss our deadline and we'll recut the tape. We haven't done that yet because we've built our approach along with everybody. You know, we've been choosing with the editorial board of, you know, eight people, uh, seven people now, um, you know, the topics and what we're going to cover and how we're going to cover it. And in episode one, you almost hear a little me sort of at the end of the episode, there, kind of summarizing our manifesto, but we actually wrote out how we want to do stuff, you know, and, and some of that is like, punch up, don't punch down, which means hold government officials and people in charge accountable. But for people who are at our level, people who are marginalized and on the bottom of society, we want to increase solidarity and agency among and for those folks. Do you worry that you might make drug use look attractive? You know, I I, I don't think if you um, if you come with us and, and hear about Sheffy getting, uh, you know, hitting the jugular there. I don't, I don't think people are like, wow, I, I want to do that. We talk about dope sickness. We talk about the incredible struggle. We, we talk honestly about the people who've died. And, you know, we haven't really ever described what it's like to be high. We haven't talked about euphoria and all the sort of cliches that you find in literature about, oh, it's like, uh, you know, a big hug or, a, or, you know, whatever it is. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think people go watch train spotting and then start using drugs. I think people probably end up using drugs because of the conditions in their lives or because human beings have just for the whole history of the world used substances, you know? Where are you going with this show? Like what would be the best thing that could happen is the idea to just keep telling these stories. You are upfront about the fact that uh, this is an activist project. Uh, There's specific policies or goals you're trying to reach. And then it's like, okay, mission accomplished. No more stories. Uh, What's the end game? You know, if there's decriminalization and safe supply tomorrow, then we probably don't have any more stories to tell. But that's not that's not coming tomorrow. We're in a drug war in Canada that's been going for 110 years. It's probably got some more years in it. So I would love to affect those kind of outcomes and those kind of changes. Pretty grandiose dream for a podcast. Uh, so we'll keep making it. Along the way, I hope we can just accidentally stumble into a new model of journalism, or maybe it's an old model of journalism. Like maybe maybe back in the day, Hannah Arendt or George Orwell or whoever, they didn't worry about being an activist and an advocate and a journalist and a writer and all that all at the same time. Maybe that's a modern illusion or, or, or conceit. I don't know. And and I'm, I'm not comparing us to, to those folks, but I just mean 
there are ways of doing journalism where you can say, here's the side we're on. Here's what we're fighting for. We also use all of the tools of journalism, like the FOIs, investigation, fact-checking, turning to the science. We And doing accountability interviews. You put people on the spot. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, we have put out requests to all kinds of people. You know, we, we got screwed around by the uh, Minister of Health and the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions here trying to get interviews with them. And they just played around for three weeks. I mean, people people know how that goes, right? And so we are trying to get those folks. And if they still want to come on the podcast, we'd, we'd gladly have them. If Mr. Tui would like to come on the podcast, I would I'd gladly uh, speak to him in, in much more polite uh, terms. Yeah, fuck that guy. That is your Canada Land. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like Canada Land, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.